myself as a retired elder. Graduated makes me feel a little bit younger, so that I do appreciate. But uh, that being said, I don't know what I graduated from uh, at all. And if, especially just as I was preparing this message, just realizing if I graduated this topic, I barely passed. I maybe got a D minus, um, but I barely passed. But that being said, I'm not up here to say, hey, look at me and how I do this. It's look at him. So that's my goal this morning. But so this morning we come to the sixth mountain in our series, Mount Zion Above is what we're calling it. In the last five weeks, uh, Darren and Brad have walked us through the first five mountains, right? And, and here in Hebrews 12, we're actually going to see that the writer of Hebrews refers back to the first two mountains that we looked at. As we heard when uh, Stephanie read, uh, he refers back to Mount Sinai, right, where Darren started our series at the mountain that, that the Israelites had there. They came out of slavery. They met with their God. And then he also refers to Mount Zion, which with Solomon and the temple. And we're going to see this is a, a different Mount Zion that we see here in this passage. But I remember just as we were going through the series, and especially those first two sermons, just kind of putting myself, trying to put myself into the shoes of those who are meeting God at these, these mountains. Because if I'm, if I'm honest with you, the God that we saw represented at Mount Sinai and the God we saw represented at Mount Zion at the temple often seems very foreign to me. When I come to worship on Sunday mornings, I'm not sure I often think of God in that light, right, in the Old Testament light. I remember back to Mount Sinai, which we just heard read from us from the book of Exodus. And at Mount Sinai, God comes down and meets his people on a mountain, and there's this overwhelming sense of fear and dread and apprehension, and there's lightning and thunder and fire and this, this trumpet getting louder and louder, and God telling his people, stay away or you're going to die. And then we get to the temple in Mount Zion, and you have God's presence there. But it requires sacrifice after sacrifice and bloodshed after bloodshed and all this preparation to be in God's presence. And, and as often as I think through all kinds of stories in the Old Testament, and we see God's uh, just seemingly harsh judgment on people for what seems like very small acts of sin and small disobedience. And if I'm being honest with you, when I worship God on Sunday mornings, when we sing these songs in the morning, I don't often think of God in that light. I think of him as a forgiving, loving, merciful God, which he is. I don't often think of him in, in that light. I don't often think of uh, our loving, forgiving God as the one that also struck a man dead for simply touching the Ark of the Covenant as it began to teeter. Or our loving and forgiving God killing Aaron's sons for offering some different type of fire for a sacrifice. Or, or wiping out entire cities of men, women, and children. I have a hard time reconciling that, if I'm honest with you. But you see, I think we're going to see that the awe and the beauty that the writer of Hebrews is going to show us here in chapter 12 is this awe and beauty that recognizing that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament aren't two different gods, as if God somehow changed or evolved over the years. No, it's God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our God loves sinners, but he also hates sinners. Our God is accepts sinners into eternity, into his presence, but it also just to condemn sinners to eternity in hell. And you see, seeing God as, as one or the other is a very dangerous thing because if we start to believe only the parts of Scripture that we feel comfortable with, a God that is more manageable for us, a God that we feel comfortable talking to our friends and our family and our coworkers about, then the question we have to ask is, who do we come to worship here on Sunday mornings? Are we truly worshiping the God of the Bible or just the manageable, loving, forgiving God we see in the New Testament. 
It's a scary thing, and, and it's a question I've been asking myself over this past couple weeks I've been preparing this message is, do I really see God in this light when I come to worship him? Do we really see him as both an unsafe lion and a good king, as we see in the Chronicles of Narnia? And again, I want to show you this morning how the book of Hebrews, or specifically this chapter, shows that by having a proper, full, biblical view of who our God is, that should compel us to joyful obedience to his commands and awe, reverent worship of his name. You see, casual, flippant, boring worship of this God, of the God of all scripture, shouldn't be possible for Christians. And I want to show you how the writer of Hebrews reveals this to us. So my prayer and my hope this morning is that God would so use his words to change our hearts and change, radically change our view of who our God is, to represent who he truly is, represented all throughout Scripture, and with that, that he would radically change our worship of his name. So we're going to look at two mountains. I'm going to show you the stark contrast of the mountains and show you how that should give us the motivation for what I see as two commands that the Hebrew writer of Hebrews shows us. So first we're going to look at mountain one, starting at verse 18, and this is Mount Sinai where we're shown to worship God with reverence. Let's look at verse 18 through 21. It says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they cannot endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Again, here the writer of Hebrews is referring back to what we just heard read for, for us in Hebrews 19 and 20. And I wanted that read before uh, the sermon here because I just really wanted this scene to be fresh in all of our minds as we went through these verses. I mean, can you imagine being at this scene? The Israelites had just been freed from slavery in Egypt where they saw all these crazy plagues that God brought down the Egyptians, right? You have the water turning into blood. You have the fiery hail crashing down. You have uh, just the firstborn of the Egyptians being killed. And then they're finally set free. They come to the, the sea. God parts the sea for them so they can go through dry land. And they turn around and see the Egyptians just covered in this water as the, the water comes crashing down and wipes them all out. So you got to think that when they got past all this, all that terror, all that destruction, all that, that just crazy things that God had done, you got to think they got past that and they kind of take a deep breath and like, I am so glad that's all behind us. All that terror and destruction and death and power, I am so glad that's behind us. And then they come to meet God at Mount Sinai. And said, there's crashes of thunder and bright bolts of lightning all around this mountain and this billow of smoke and this consuming fire is coming down on the mountain, almost like a volcano, a volcano now. And then the earth, the earth is rumbling behind or beneath their feet. So you have a volcano, you have an earthquake, and these people are standing at this mountain after seeing all that destruction behind them, and they come to meet their God, and this is what they experienced. They had to be absolutely terrified. I mean, how could you stand at the, this mountain and see the power and the holiness of this God and not tremble with fear? I would be scared to death. I think all of us would be scared to death. Even Moses, the one who the Bible says he, he spoke to God face to face as if he were a friend, it says he trembled with fear. This had to be an incredible scene. These people were in the presence of an all-holy God, and they were absolutely terrified. And it's not the only time that godly men being in God's presence or getting a vision of God uh, terrified them. You think of Isaiah, right? 
Isaiah 6, he comes and gets a vision of God in the temple on his throne and it says that the angels are flying above them and their voice is shaking the earth. And Isaiah sees this and sees an all holy God and he's just like, woe is me. It's like, I am a dead man. Like, I'm a man of unclean lips. I come from a people of unclean lips. I'm in presence of an all holy God. He's going to wipe me out. I don't deserve to be in this God's presence. And he is petrified. Isaiah, the prophet. You think of Ezekiel. He gets a vision of God and says he falls down on his face. Daniel gets a vision of God and he's terrified and says his face turns pale. Or John in Revelation describes seeing him as an all white with eyes as flames of fire and his voice like the roar of many waters. And when John sees him, he falls down, down as though he is dead. Brothers and sisters, being in the presence of an all holy, almighty God will terrify every single man because it's at that point when you're in presence of an all-holy God, that you realize that you are not worthy, that you are unholy, that you are wretched, and you deserve to be wiped out. That's how you, we all would respond in the presence of this holy God. And they, they experience this at the Mount Sinai, and they say they don't want any more message spoken to them. They're like, Moses, you know, you go talk to God. You come back and tell us what he says, but we don't even want to hear his voice because we aren't even worthy to be in this God's presence. And God's holiness doesn't just affect humans. Again, go back to Isaiah 6, right? put this down here so I don't knock it over. Isaiah 6, right? You have the seraphim flying, and it says where they have six wings, two cover their face, two cover their feet, and two with two they're flying. These angels who are, have not fallen, who have not sinned, are covering their face because they can't even look on God's holiness. I mean, do we realize that this is the God that we come to worship? Now, before we get to the next mountain, I just, as Darren has kind of done over the last weeks, let's take a minute and pause. And really ask ourselves, when we come to worship on Sunday morning, do we realize this is the God we come to worship? A God who is so holy that angels can't even look upon his face. A God who is so serious about sin that he strikes a man dead for touching the Ark of the Covenant. A God so majestic that Isaiah sees him and it says that the train of his robe is completely filling the temple. Is this the God we come to worship? Or do we come to worship a tame gentle, loving, forgiving God who just fits comfortably in our life, who we can put in our little box. Maybe our God who isn't that angry at sin, so we don't really have to feel conviction in, over sin as we sing praises to an all-holy God. A God, if we saw him face-to-face, we think we wouldn't be terrified and or we wouldn't really fall on our face before him. We can just skip into his presence as if we are his friends. A.W. Tozer put it this way. He said it was a common thing in other days when God was the center of human worship to kneel at an altar and shake, tremble, weep, and perspire in agony of conviction. He said they expected that in that day. We don't see it now because we don't often think of God as the everlasting, awful God, mine holy one who has a purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on iniquity. See, my fear is that I don't know if we worship God with the same type of reverence that Tozer is talking about. I know I don't worship God with the same type of reverence that Tozer is referring to. We don't often see him as the one of pure eyes than to behold he evil. We don't need to approach God with the same dread and fear that the Israelites did at Mount Sinai. Make no mistake about that. But our God is still to be worshipped with reverence and because our God has awesome power and awesome holiness. We don't have to approach him in fear anymore as his sons and daughters, but we still worship him with reverence. We should fall on our face 
before this holy God. And we should, when we worship this God, we should have some sort of sense of agony, of conviction of our sin as we're singing praises to this all holy God who can't even behold evil. And in some sense, we should shake and tremble as we realize who we are in the presence of as we sing these praises to him. So do we worship God with this type of reverence? So that's the first mountain. We see at Mount Sinai. And now we get to mountain two, Mount Zion, where we're showed to worship with awe. So he gets done and talks about Mount Sinai, but then he continues. And he says, you have not come to this mountain. You've not come to the terror and the fear of mountain, Mount Sion, or Sinai, but praise God, brothers and sisters, through the blood of Christ, verse 22 and 20 through 24, you've come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels and festal gatherings and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What a drastic contrast the writer of Hebrews has given us here, right? You haven't come to Mount Sinai, but you come to Mount Zion. Again, it's the same God. God has not changed. It's the same God, but you've approached him at a different mountain. You've come to the same God the Israelites were petrified to approach, but through the blood of Jesus, you've come to God at a different mountain. So you haven't come to the frightening scene of a blazing fire and darkness and doom, but you've come to verse 22, the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem. Here the writer is referring to uh, Revelation where we'll spend eternity. So instead of darkness at Mount Sinai, you've come to Mount Zion that has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb. You've not come to God at Mount Sinai where you would die if you just touched the mountain and you had to stand far off because of fear, but you've come to Mount Zion that John describes in Revelation as coming down from heaven and a voice saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is now with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. You see, at Mount Sinai, God told his people, Stay away, or you will die. But at Mount Zion, God bids his people come near to him so they can live forever. You've not come to Mount Sinai with its terrifying loud trumpet blast, but you've come to Mount Zion, where there is verse 22 the sound of innumerable angels and festal gatherings, worshiping and praising God. And you're coming to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and the spirits of the righteous made perfect. All those heroes in the faith that we read about in Hebrews 11, we are going to be with them one day, worshiping around the throne together with them. But better than that, better than all of that, even all that stuff is amazing, but better than that, verse 23 and 24, you're coming to God the judge of all, and to Jesus. See, if we get to heaven and we have all the pleasures of heaven, we have no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sickness, and we have all our friends and family who have trusted in, in Christ there, but God is not there, we're not in heaven. We don't trust Christ to get those things. We trust in Christ to get God. He's who we want. He's our reward. He is who we long for. So the writer of Hebrews sets up this very strong contrast between, again, the God that they met at Mount Sinai and the God that we meet at Mount Zion. But again, make no mistake, God is still the wrathful, holy, powerful, dreadful God at Mount Sinai, but he's also the loving, accepting, merciful God at Mount Zion. So the question is, how was the writer of Hebrews confident that those he was writing to were approaching God at Mount Zion and not at Mount Sinai? And in turn, how can we be confident 
that we're approaching God at Mount Zion confidently and not at Mount Sinai where we have to approach in fear. Look again at verse 24. It says, you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, the sacrifice offered by Abel that is described in Hebrews 11 was pleasing in the sight of God and it was acceptable for Abel and Abel alone. But the blood of Jesus Christ is infinitely more acceptable to God because it's shed for the whole human race and for anyone who trusts in him, it will cleanse them from all unrighteousness. And that's the key difference. The key difference between these two mountains is if you approach God unmediated as the people of Israel did at Mount Sinai, it's a very, very fearful thing. But if you approach God with a mediator, you approach God through the blood of Jesus Christ, you can confidently draw near to him. And this is incredible news. This is mind-blowing news. And it, but it isn't something we should just bask in and just enjoy for the rest of our life. I think the writer of Hebrews gives uh, this, what we've seen, as motivation for two commands that he, he gives us here. So the first command I think he shows us is that we should use this as motivation for joyful obedience to his commands. Look at verse 25. It says, Do not refuse him who is speaking, for they did not escape when they refused him who warned from earth. So here it's referring again back to Moses. So Moses warned the Israelites, and they didn't listen, and so they didn't get to go into the promised land. So he's saying if they, if they didn't escape then when Moses was warning them, how much less will we escape if we reject he who warns from heaven. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this, this first command because it isn't the, the main point of our sermon series, but I want it to be uh, faithful to it. You see, when we realize that God is holy and just and wrathful towards God, but that same God sent his son to die on the cross for our sins, taking our wrath that we deserved on him, how can we have any other response than joyful obedience to his commands? Brothers and sisters, we need to listen to God's voice when he's calling because make no doubt, he still speaks, he still calls, he still leads today. Don't be like the Israelites who, who disobeyed and never got to go into the, the promised land. Our God is so deadly serious about sin and so holy that he can't be in the presence of sin as we saw on Mount Sinai. So why would we willingly disobey his voice and disregard his commands? He saved us by the shed blood of his son so we no longer slaves to sin but slaves to righteousness. So why would we trample on this blood and why would we neglect such a great salvation? But ultimately, if you not only refuse his commands, but if you ultimately refuse him and his offer of salvation, then when he comes back in verse 26, it says he shakes not only the earth but also the heavens in order that the things that cannot be shaken re may remain at that point, you won't have a chance to listen to his voice anymore. When he comes back and shakes everything, and only those who are holding on to him remain, you, it will be too late. And as we read in Revelation 16, when Jesus comes, uh, John writes this. He says, And there were flashes of lightnings and rumblings and peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as there has never been since man was on earth. So great was that earthquake. Sounds like the scene at Mount Sinai, doesn't it? except this is the yet once more the writer of Hebrews is referring to. The mountain trembled at Mount Sinai, but there will be a greater earthquake on that day. And if you've trusted in anything else by the blood of Jesus Christ, you will be consumed by our all-consuming God. Make no mistake, our God is still serious about sin. You want proof? Look at the cross. 
where God poured down his wrath that we deserved on his innocent, sinless son so that we could be spared. He's still serious about sin. So if that's you this morning, let me urge you. Let me plead to you with everything in me. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. So if he's calling you this morning, let today be the day of salvation. Okay, so the first command is joyfully uh, obey his commands. The second one is to accept, present acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Look at verse 28. It says, therefore, therefore, in light of everything we've seen, in light of we, everything we've seen with God of Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire. So years ago, we used to have these huge bonfires in my parents' backyard so my parents could take all responsibility and the fire department ever showed up. But so they had, they had a big backyard. We didn't have a very big backyard, so that's my excuse. But so we had these big bonfires and we used to have these uh, bring something to burn parties. Remember these, Phil? The bring something to burn parties? Such a bad idea. It was fun. Such a bad idea. So we'd have all our friends just, just bring all this stuff. So we had like TVs, couches, pallets, like all this stuff you really shouldn't be burning, let alone breathing in the fumes from this. Kids, don't try this at home. We're not doing this at our house. Just learn from my mistakes. But hey, me and Phil are still alive, so it wasn't that bad, I don't think. But, um, but I mean, this, this fire, it just got huge. I mean, it was, it was, I don't know, probably 20, 30 feet high. It would just singe the whole ground around it. We had to, like, stand basically on my parents' back porch, which was half mile from this fire. We really couldn't even enjoy this fire, but it was cool. We were stupid. But, but it, so you couldn't come near this fire. It was just, it was so hot. We couldn't even enjoy it. But then there's one time my, my cousin was a firefighter. And so he brought his firefighter's outfit. So I'm like, oh, let's try this out. So I put the whole firefighter gear on, you know, the helmet, the mask, the gloves, the boots, the whole gear. And it was crazy. I was able to actually walk right up to that fire. And it got hot, but I didn't get consumed. I didn't get, like, burned at all. But now if I would have come with my winter clothes, like my winter hats, winter gloves, you know, snow boots and everything like that, I would have been completely consumed. But because I was wearing the one thing that could cover me and protect me for this consuming fire, I was fine. You see, if you've come to God with any other covering but the blood of Jesus Christ, if you've come to God through anything else or anyone else speaking for you than the blood of Jesus Christ, you will be consumed by God because it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. If God were to ask you on that day, why should he accept you into his presence for all eternity? And your answer begins with, I. I went to church. I was a good person. I prayed. I was a pastor. I was a community group leader. I Anything, I did anything, you will be consumed because the only acceptable answer on that day is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's blood covers me. Jesus Christ died for me. Jesus Christ adopted me. That is the only acceptable answer on that day. And if you've come covered in that blood, in the blood of Jesus Christ, you can with confidence draw near to God. And, and we will be consumed with God, but we won't be consumed by fear. We'll be consumed with a love for God, a thanksgiving to God a passion for the holiness and the glory of God, consumed with reverence and awe of God so much that it should overflow in radical, passionate worship of him. Church, again, casual worship of this God should not be possible. It shouldn't be acceptable. But I'm afraid that for many, including myself, as I feel like I'm the chief of sinners in this, I feel like I often just skip into God's presence flippantly. If I'm honest with you, I come here on Sunday mornings, it becomes routine to me. It's like, oh, Sunday morning, let's go. We're going to church, sing a couple songs, hear the word be preached. 
sing a couple more songs, go on through the rest of our day. I, I might say never, but I would say rarely, so maybe sometimes I do this right. I rarely come in here and really realize what we're here for, realize what we're doing, realize who we're worshiping. Very, very, very rarely do I do this. And as I've been preparing this, I've been so convicted, just praying God changed my heart. So when I come here on Sunday mornings, I'm just overwhelmed by the God that we're worshiping, the God we're hearing preach to us. Just pray that God would change my heart so that we would worship him with reverence and awe. C.S. Lewis said this about worship. So I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It's his appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it's expressed. The delight's incomplete till it's expressed. I love that quote. The fact is, God in his mercy has provided a way for us that we can complete our enjoyment in him. Not just express our enjoyment, but the actual singing of his praises should complete that enjoyment that we have in God. That reality alone, the fact that God has saved us, should overflow in worship and awe and reverence of his name and complete our enjoyment in him. In 988 AD, this Russian prince named Vladimir, um, he was looking for a, a religion to unite their country around. So what he did is he took his emissaries and he told them to kind of go through the surrounding countries and go to different type of religions and come back and report to him, okay, which, which religion is like worthy of us, you know, kind of uniting our country around. So the, the emissaries went out and they visited Muslim mosques. They visited Roman Catholic churches. They visited the followers of Judaism. And finally, they traveled to Constantinople, where they came to Hagia Sophia, which was then a Christian church. And his emissaries stayed for some time, it says, because they were deeply stirred by the worship of this Christian church. And this emotional impact of, this, of being around these, these Christians left such an impact on them. And it was so intense that they reported this back to the prince. He said, the emissaries wrote back and said, we knew not whether we were in heaven or on earth, for surely there is no such splendor or beauty anywhere upon earth. We cannot describe it to you. Only this we know, that God dwells there among men and that their service surpasses the worship of all other places. And again, as, as I read that story, as I was preparing for the, the sermon, I began to just think, if, if these men were to come into our service, is this the type of report that they would send back? As unbelievers come and, and, and come to our service, is this the type of report they would have? Are they deeply stirred by the worship because they see how passionately we're worshiping this God? And whether they believe or not, they say, God is truly in this place. And the, these people are so passionate about this God that they worship. Even if I don't believe in their God, they believe. They trust in this God. They, they love this God so much that the, their worship is so passionate because they should. The fact is, people, as they see us worshiping this God, if we truly know who God is and we worship him based on everything we know and everything he's done, how can we not worship with that type of passion, that excitement? Our worship should never be dull and boring. It should be exhilarating as we sing praises to our God. Brothers and sisters, praise God that we do not have to come to Mount Sinai with his inapproachability and terror, who because of our sin and his holiness must keep his people at a distance, but we've come to Mount Zion, where God, through his son, Jesus Christ, has fully and finally dealt with the sin of his people and has consequently drawn his people near to him, who's torn that curtain in two, 
providing free and open access for his people for all of time. This is good news. This is the greatest news in all of history, and it should spark in us an overwhelming desire to worship this guy with excitement and reverence and awe. If you come through Jesus' blood, and then you are welcome as a wretched sinner into the holy God's presence, and you're welcome into eternity forever. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but now you can boldly approach God being made alive to Christ. You were slaves to sin in the snare of the devil, but you can boldly approach him being slaves to righteousness in the embrace of our God. You were enemies of God. You hated God, but now you can boldly approach God as a son and daughter and co-heir with Christ. You had every right to be terrified in the presence of this all-holy God as you were covered in your sin, but now you can boldly approach God because you're covered in Christ's righteousness. And none of this is your own doing. You did nothing to contribute to your salvation. The only thing you contributed is a sin that you needed saved from. But it's all a work of the sovereign grace in your life who before the foundation of the world, before the stars were spread across the sky, the mountains were formed, the seas were dug, looked at your soul and chose to save you. Praise God, brothers and sisters. Let us sing praises to this God with reverence and awe and excitement and passion and thanksgiving as we eagerly await that day when we will worship around the throne with every tongue, tribe, and nation, with all the angels worshiping our God. So we look forward to that day. But until then, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God this morning and every single day for the rest of our lives, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire. Let me pray. Father God, give us a vision of you, Lord. Pray we would just, you would radically change how we see you, Lord, into a more biblical view. Lord, pray we'd, we'd see you as the all-holy, all-worthy, almighty God who saved us, who's merciful towards us, who's forgiving us, who's loving towards us, God. Lord, I pray that the reality would just rock our lives, Lord, that we both want to share the good news and then we come here and we want to worship your name based on who you are and what you've done for us, God. We, we thank you. Lord, we thank you so much for all you've, you've done for us, God. Thank you for being a God who's all holy, who created the universe and everything we know, Lord, but you chose us. You adopted us, Lord, and that reality alone should bring us joy and excitement and awe and reverence of your name, God. So, Lord, help us to worship you in spirit and truth. Help us to worship you with the reverence and the awe that you require and you deserve. In Jesus' name we pray. stand.